Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with two powerhouse UN ambassadors, Ambassador Anna Karin Enestrom of Sweden and Ambassador Joka Brandt of the Netherlands. Excellencies, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And how did you come to your careers in diplomacy? Ambassador Enestrom, you first, please. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here with you. I grew up in a mid-sized city in the western part of Sweden. And I think my way to diplomacy was a bit by coincidence. I actually wanted to become an archaeologist, but my mother and my father and my friends advised me otherwise, and I ended up studying law. And while studying law, I really wanted to become a judge. But then by coincidence, I came into international law and I got in touch with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they encouraged me to apply. And here I am. And when I actually started in a ministry, I felt like I came home. So I've been home ever since. That's many years back. But that was how I ended up in diplomacy. How interesting. And can I ask, what was the objection to archaeology? I don't know. I've been always been interested in history. And I wanted to combine that with what I saw as very exciting to be out in the field and discover things. So there was a combination of that. But did your family think that wasn't appropriate or why did they discourage you from pursuing that? No, no, not appropriate. My mother thought that it would be difficult to find uh, jobs in that sector. That's why she advised me otherwise. But there was a pressure also from my friends that all of them studied law. So I I guess I joined the flow. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Ambassador Brent, how about you? Thanks for having me, uh, Esther. It's uh, nice to be here together with Anna Karin. I have a a different story, but it's also a little bit diplomacy by coincidence, (laughs) I think. I grew up in a town uh, just out of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And as you know, Rotterdam is uh, one of the biggest port cities in the world. During high school, I got interested in problems of developing countries. And so I decided that was what I wanted to do at university, but I wasn't quite sure, like what, because it's a very broad field. I went to these introduction days and I looked at the sociology of non-Western countries. I looked at anthropology and then I came across geography and that actually gave me what I needed because it was a very broad study that allowed you to do specialization in developing countries after three years. And that's what I did. I also decided then to do development economics on the side. Started working basically for the Dutch volunteer organization in Kenya, in Africa, because that's where my interest was. And then a little bit like an occurrence that somebody from the embassy in Nairobi spotted me and said, why don't you apply for the course to become a diplomat? And I did. And I got into the job and like an occurrence, here I am. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction, both of you. So both of you have served in various senior leadership positions in your ministries of foreign affairs. How would you characterize the environment for female diplomats in your organizations now? And how does that compare to how it was when you started your career? 
Ambassador Ennestrom, when you said your mother advised you, I thought she was going to say that you would have a hard time finding a husband. And that's why she didn't want you to be an archaeologist, because that's what a friend told me when I said I got into the U.S. Foreign Service. They said, you'll never get married if you become a diplomat. So I wonder how it was when you started and how it is now. My mother is my role feminist model. She did not say that, but it's an enormous difference from when I started in the ministry compared to now I'm here representing a feminist foreign policy, a feminist government. When I started in the ministry, a couple of years after the Ministry of Foreign Affairs got a prize as the worst workplace for women in Sweden. When I was on my first post, one senior colleague told me that don't even try to spend any energy on security policy because women cannot write analytical reports. So that was how I started. And there is, of course, an enormous difference to now when we have a very equal organization, a lot of women on top management posts on some of the most important ambassadorial posts around the world. So big difference. And it's even and Ambassador Brandt, what about for the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs? Well, let me start out by saying that also for me, my mother was a great inspiration and role model, and mostly because she challenged me to always, to never say that I wasn't able to do something. If I would say, I'm not sure I can do that, and that was also in my career, she said, of course you can. You know, just go for it and do it. So I think, Anna Karin, compared to when I started, I think a lot of progress has been made in terms of the ministry having the right policies in place and doing the right things. And obviously, there is a huge difference between them and now. But I also feel that we still have uh, very important steps to take. As an example, I am the first female PR here in New York after 75 years. That's a little bit late, I would say. And especially when it comes to the ambassadorial positions in the higher positions, we still have a, a lot of work to do. Although in The Hague, a lot of strides have been made at the top management level as well. And I think we should always take into account that it's not only up to the organization, but also uh, up to the society that you work in. And what I find very frustrating is that sort of young women now still face the same sort of issues that I faced when I just started working. And it's not just within the organization, but it is also the way that society generally looks at women that spend so much time at work and there is still um, a bias against all that. So I think we still need to do work on a lot of fronts. Absolutely agreed. And we've seen that the pandemic has really hurt working women so much harder than working men. I wonder, Ambassador Brandt, if you could talk about the tremendous strides in diplomacy So even in the U.S. State Department and in the ministries from both your countries, we've seen so many women ambassadors, much more proportionally, say, than women CEOs. And I wonder Mm. if you have any thoughts on why women have progressed so much in diplomacy, which was traditionally as male-dominated as business, but have had so much trouble breaking through in business. I think it's moving on now in the Netherlands as well, but it took a bit longer for the private sector to realize that you need to make the extra mile. I remember when I just started and talked to the boss of the Dutch Employers Organization, he said, it's not really necessary. We don't need quota. We don't need special systems because women will get there. And I said, yes, they will, but it will take them a hundred years. So you do need to put special measures in place. What was one of my great victories when two, three years later, he was one of the biggest advocates for big companies coming up with quota for having women in their boards and all that. So I think particularly the bigger companies, they're moving quite fast now. I think that's encouraging to see. 
And Ambassador Enestrom, Sweden is known as, of course, a famous gender equality champion. Did Sweden put in quotas for women on boards, or was there a natural progression of women coming into leadership positions there? Can I first agree with what Yuka said about senior positions in some, in some ambassadorial positions? I have behind me Agda Russell, who was actually the first ever female UN ambassador. She became ambassador in 1958. And she held that position until 1962. And there, there was a gap until 2020 when I actually was appointed uh, Sweden's ambassador. I was also the first female political director in our ministry. So it's like Yuka said, there are things that we need to continue to work with. I think a natural pressure on, on companies to modernize and to realize like the rest of the society that women are 50% of our mm. societies and you need to tap that resource as well. So that has been a natural development and not based on quotas. Excellent. So both of you in your careers have served in hardship posts, Ambassador Brandt as ambassador to Eritrea and Uganda and Ambassador Enestrom as ambassador and special envoy to Pakistan and Afghanistan. How did the challenges of working in those environments compare to the constant demands of being the permanent representative of your country in New York? Ambassador Brandt, we'll start with you, please. I'd like to start off by saying that hardship is a relative concept, except, of course, when it concerns physical hardship, when there's security issues involved, because I never considered neither Uganda nor Eritrea to be hardship posts, because I really enjoyed the environments to work in that. But it is true that the bilateral and the multilateral work is very different in the sense that, like you said, Esther, the multilateral work is like 24-7, 193 countries and all the UN agencies. And then everything from the hard security issues to human rights to humanitarian. So it's a much bigger sort of spectrum and the more and many more counterparts that you work with. And therefore, it's in my experience, is the bilateral work is more planable. It is not on Friday you think uh, that you know how your week looks like the, <laughs> the following week and on Monday it turns out that, oh no, it looks completely different than I set out thinking. But I think hardship means something different for everybody. Some people would have considered Eritrea to be hardship because there was not much to do. There was not much really in terms of luxury, but I really enjoyed it because it gave me the satisfaction of working in an environment where I really felt I could do something and make a difference. And thank you for that clarification on that. I know in the State Department, many of the posts, I think it's something like 65% of posts are hardship now for environmental reasons, for air yeah, quality and, and things like that, and not so much danger. Um, Ambassador. Enestrom, what about you? Let me first say that my years in Pakistan and also with Afghanistan were some of the most challenging, but also most rewarding years that I've had in my career. I think I had real hardship because I was in Pakistan during some of the most difficult years. That meant that I had also needed to send my family and some of the families of the staff back to Sweden because of security, the security situation on the ground. But I have so many friends and both are fantastic countries to work in, really, despite the difficult security environment that I had during the years there. But I agree with what Jukka said about the differences between working in multilateral affairs and working bilaterally. And I came from New York to Islamabad. And I think for me, that was my real first bilateral posting at a senior level. And I was a bit frustrated by the fact that things did not happen by itself <laughs> as it does here. So I was used to 
going down to the delegates lounge uh, at the UN, taking my morning coffee and picking up what was going on and then knowing how to spend my day. Or as Yuka said, that the day was already planned. Uh, things are happening automatically and you're a part of it. Uh, you're a part of this wheel that is moving all the time, 24-7. And of course, in a bilateral posing, it's much more up to yourself to decide which issues you want to deal with, how you do it. You can set your agenda very much by yourself. But mm. it took some time for me to get used to that, having spent many years here in New York. And in all those environments, some of which were very conservative socially, did either of you ever run into any problems uh, because of your gender? Or was the fact of your rank enough to break down any social barriers that anyone might have had or hesitation about dealing with a woman? Ambassador Brent? What happened every now and then was that they didn't see me as the ambassador first. My male colleague who was with me, who would be one of my staff members, they would address him as the ambassador because they found it difficult to see that this woman was actually the ambassador. But as soon as you corrected that, I've never felt that I was treated, treated differently. Uh, I think there was a really funny moment at one point in time when I was in Uganda. We were involved in the peace talks in northern Uganda. And I got on the phone. One of my staff, male staff members, was in a phone call. And he said, well, I'll give you to my ambassador. So I picked up the phone and was deadly silence on the other hand. So I said, what? And then he said, you didn't tell me he was a woman. So that sort of showed me sides. I think it's what you said. It's then ultimately the rank that puts you a little bit outside the particular cultural sensitivities that there might be. And I've never felt any problem as far as that's concerned. Ambassador Anistrom? There were differences if I was in the capital or in the countryside, mainly in Pakistan, same thing in, in Afghanistan. It's there I never encountered any problems at all. I think like Yuka said, it's the rank. And of course, Pakistan is a country who had lots of very, very senior females mm. in important positions. So I did not encounter any problems. I had some experience like Yuka with my husband who was with me that day. Many times when I came to receptions, they addressed him and, and tried to get him into some of the activities rather than me. But I also have positive experience in a way that sometimes I could reach, especially women in the countryside, that a male colleague could not do. And that was an advantage yeah. that I used. And so I could come to meetings that were excluded from men. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think in that sense, it's an advantage because to put it very black and white, because of your rank, you can basically talk to everybody. But because you're a woman, it's much easier, especially in rural areas, it's much easier to get to the women and to have the discussions with the women about what their issues are and how we can help address those. In that sense, it's been an advantage for me as well. And especially for countries with feminist foreign policies, then you're bringing <laughs> to the table a whole group that for your national interest you're trying to reach, but maybe traditional or more traditional male ambassador wouldn't be able to reach. I wonder if you could tell our listeners the priorities for development cooperation of each of your countries. <laughs> ambassador Enestrom, please go first. I think you will hear a lot of similarities between our two countries. We work very closely, not only Yuka and I, but also Sweden and the Netherlands when it comes to development cooperation. So I will say that the Swedish development cooperation core is poverty eradication, and that's the main objective. And of course, to reach that, we work with different areas. We have a right-based development cooperation, very much 
promoting the rights of people. We know that in order to achieve a sustainable development, you need a peaceful environment. Therefore, the conflict prevention approach is important part of our development cooperation. Of course, equality, we've spoken a lot about gender equality and about almost 90% of our development cooperation has either as the main objective or a partial objective to achieve gender equality. And maybe the last one I want to say is the environment and, and climate approach. So all the activities or all the support that we are involved in has a climate or an environment approach. And of course, you also know that we obtain 1% of the GDP to development cooperation. This is something that we will continue to do. Thank you. Ambassador Brandt? As uh, Anna Karin said, a lot of similarities. We sometimes joke that we can just swap speaking notes because we're so like-minded on many of these issues. And maybe just one or two things that I could add, as is also the case with Sweden. I know that, of course, the sustainable development goals are the kind of umbrella under which we both operate. And it's been, of course, the guiding principle for the Netherlands Development Corporation as well. And then again, the strong focus on reducing poverty and inequality with a specific attention for vulnerable groups, marginalized groups, but also gender equality being very important. And for us, we focus a lot on issues like sexual reproductive health and rights, LGBT rights, which are issues that are not controversial in the Netherlands. So we can do this with a consistency throughout the years. It doesn't really matter which government in, is in power in the Netherlands. These are issues that we can always address and fight for. The last one and a half years or so, we've spoken about the three Cs. The C, of course, of conflict prevention that Anna Karin was also referring to, and of climate. We're in a very important year for climate this year. And obviously, you just mentioned it, Esther, we had COVID, of course, and now fighting COVID is not just the impact of it, but also that we've seen that it lays bare a lot of structural inequalities also for women that we need to work on. Thank you very much, Ambassador Brandt, for mentioning sexual and reproductive health and rights. Both of your countries are, are champions of this issue for women around the world, but we know that is not equally a priority for other countries and that many countries that are more socially conservative or do not have such similar policies feel very differently. So I wonder if each of you could talk a bit about what it is like to take a difficult issue such as this one, or perhaps a support for something like free access to information or accountable institutions that may not be as popular with every UN member state and what it's like to try to advance that issue in an environment where you're dealing with every country in the world. Ambassador Brandt? Thanks very much. I think that that's a great question. And especially, of course, here in this multilateral environments that are often principle value-based issues. And I think it's easy to talk to Anna Karin and we would agree in 10 seconds. That's the easy part. It's important to have a strong links with like-minded partners because you need to have that mass. But I think what we need to do more, we're already doing it, but we need to do more is reaching out to those that are maybe not yet in the like-minded group and understand that you can't have it all overnight. So sometimes be a little bit more patient and take small steps in the right direction is also eventually going to create change. So I think we need to together reach out more to those that maybe not be the ones that you're never going to convince, but the ones that by talking, by listening, by finding common ground that you can gradually 
help them see how important these issues are. And I find that one of the most fascinating parts of my job, actually. Ambassador Enestrom? I agree with Yuka, and I think New York is a fantastic environment for that. I think this is one of our key tasks here in New York and in multilateralism is to talk to others and to find a common way forward. And I think not only talking, I think listening is very important as well. I think you and I come from countries where we sometimes point a lot of fingers and hands because we know we have come far in our own societies and built a strong societies. But I think it's very important to listen and to discuss why we take these positions because they come from somewhere. And it's really part of how we build strong societies by having a right-based approach. And I've had these discussions in many countries where I've been posted that while Sweden is very strong on human rights, it's not because we want to point at others when it comes to human rights. It's because this is how we build a strong society. We build a strong society by people having their voices heard and being a part of the society. So I think, and it's the same thing with the SRHR. This is about the lives of many girls and, and women all around the world. They need to take decisions about their own bodies. So I think you need to have this conversation. Thank you. So both your countries were strong champions of the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Agenda, and both of your countries have strong commitments to the multilateral system. So I wonder if you could tell us what is your opinion on what role the UN should play to help countries achieve the SDGs? Ambassador Brandt? Of course, the the UN has been crucial in getting us all together the SDGs at that moment in 2015. And I think what is really special for the UN is, of course, the fact that it's all 193 of us and it is the organization with the biggest global footprint. So if we're talking about the sustainable development goals, of course, unlike the MDGs that were really focused only on developing countries, now with the SDGs, it's really global. I think the UN is really the only organization that has that footprint, but also the legitimacy basically by the fact that it's all 193 of us to do that work. And I think the presence on the ground enables the UN to make a difference on the ground for people on the ground in very different circumstances and through very different means from the really different settings of conflict settings, least developed countries, middle income countries, I think that's what the UN can bring also through its normative mandate and a very strong focus that we now have on leaving no one behind, which was, of course, already there, but which was, again, made very clear by the COVID pandemic that we really need to focus on those furthest behind if we are ever going to achieve the 2030 commitments. We were already behind And COVID has put us even further behind and has even vulnerable countries and vulnerable people even further behind. So we really have to focus now on reaching those vulnerable groups, helping those vulnerable countries to make it to to, to 2030. Ambassador Anastrom? First to say that the SDG and the Agenda 2030 is a fantastic agenda and what an achievement by 193 member states. I think now the key is the implementation. Zuka has said we are backtracking. We did backtrack already before the pandemic. We are really going backwards right now. So I would say that not only the UN, but the responsibility and the task of all of us is now to try to get as much political energy as possible into the implementation of the entire agenda. I think that's key. 
And I think also what the UN can do in encouraging young people to actually put pressure on their leadership for the implementation of the agenda. I think this is what we need to work on right now. And it's very sad to see that we are now seeing the human development for the first time is actually going backwards and not forward. So it's a big task, but we need to mobilize this political energy into the implementation of the entire agenda. So one of the criticisms we hear is that the UN and the multilateral development system has been working on poverty for 70 years, and most of the countries that it serves are still poor. So in your opinion, what can the multilateral system, in partnership with other actors like the private sector and academia and youth and other groups, what can they do more effectively to work together to achieve more lasting development progress, particularly in the poorest countries? Ambassador Ennistrom? I think this way of working as a networked multilateralism, I think that's the future. I think we know now that we need to enlarge the multilateral system to other actors. We have worked with the IFI, the financial institutions and civil society for a long time. But I think now we see the real need to work in a more networked way, both when it comes to financing, but also when it comes to other ways of implementing the agenda. So I think that this is the future. The future is to bring in the private sector, to bring in the financial institutions, to bring in the civil society and the youth in, in a much more networked way than we have done so far. And I think this is not something that is good. It's a necessity for the implementation of the global agenda. And Ambassador Brandt, of course, you had a very high level position at UNICEF from personal experience of how these agencies work. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I think you're right, Esther, when you said that there's a lot of criticism. I think sometimes we forget that we've also achieved quite a lot coming from UNICEF. As you said, we've been able to halve child mortality in the course of a decade or 15 years. And that's a real achievement. And that's an achievement that the UN has really made a big contribution. Then there's other things, of course. If you look at global poverty, if you compare the 75 years of the UN's existence, I do think we've made incredible strides. Forward. But obviously, as there's a lot of challenges we just talked about them that are exacerbated now by the pandemic. And I think also the UN, you can't work like you did 75 years ago, but also not like you did 15 years ago. The fact that we're now able to talk with the three of us on this screen, we've had the digital revolution that also creates enormous opportunities, specifically also for what Anna Karin mentioned for the UN to be a more inclusive organization, to be able to actually link up with actors on the ground. It's important to have these partnerships with the international financial institutions, with civil society organizations, with private sector, both, as Anna Karin said, on the financial side, but also to be infused with the ideas that young people, women's groups, civil society have, because the UN will need them to make that next step. And I think it's difficult for an organization that is in its core an intergovernmental organization to make these steps towards this network multilateralism. But we'll have to do it because otherwise developments will turn in such a way. I already mentioned the digital revolution, but also people want to have their voices heard. So if we don't do it, then you run the risk of being made a little bit redundant. Like you'll have to make that step. We'll have to jump. We'll have to do it. Thank you. 
So I wonder in your time being the permanent representative of your country in New York, <laughs> what has surprised you the most? Ambassador Brent? For me, that answer is really easy because I arrived in September. I was quite amazed at how everything kept working despite the pandemic. I'm sure we're all a little bit tired of talking to screens and all that. But I must say when I arrived in September and two weeks later, we had a high level week and it happened to just happen. That was in itself, I think, uh, already quite surprising for me that we all managed to keep it going. And we still do, despite all of us really looking forward to meeting in person. But I thought that that was quite astonishing. And if I can just follow up there, Ambassador Brandt, so much of diplomacy is talking to people in person. Absolutely. So how has working on Zoom affected your ability to relate with your fellow ambassadors and other diplomats? You're absolutely right. And just building on also what Anna Karin just said, it's a lot about relating to people, listening to people, understanding other points of view. And obviously, like I said, we're all really dying for these in-person meetings again, because I think we should be really grateful that we've had this situation now when we can do this so it is possible to talk to each other it is possible to connect but i do think the diplomacy is really i always say a team sport you will have to do it together you have to have your in-person meetings although i do hope that we'll keep some of the things that we've learned through the pandemic and through virtual working because i don't think we should throw it all in the waste paper basket, but keep what has served us and continue with what we really need to do. That's also our in-person meetings and our in-person work to do the real diplomatic work. Ambassador Amistrom, what about you? What has surprised you the most? I was here uh, in 2002 to, uh, to seven, and as much as I can say that UN has not changed that much, what I've seen since I came back is that the difficulties that we have sometimes to reach consensus on issues and how difficult the negotiations uh, are. They were difficult then, but I see that we have even more difficulties in reaching consensus, specifically in some issues. But my second observation is very much similar to, to Yuka. I started my position in January 2020, so just a few months before the pandemic happened. So I've been here all through the pandemic. And, and I think it's amazing how we've been able to continue our work. And both Yuka and I have facilitated pretty difficult processes during this time. And the way that we have been able to manage everything from very sensitive one-to-one -one meetings to big meetings with several hundred participants, I think it's really something that we we need to remember that has worked with its defaults, but it has worked. But of course, we are eagerly awaiting <laughs> that we can meet more naturally. And I'm telling my colleagues here that I think we have been deprived of one of the most important tools for a diplomat, and that's the informal conversation, having that over a cup of coffee or a lunch. So I think that's how we need to continue to work. And that's been, I think, the most difficult part of the pandemic. But to see also the advantages, as Yuka said, that I mean, we've been able to arrange meetings with hundreds of people from all over the world in a very short time. And I've seen more of my ministers, I think, during the past year on screens and in meetings than I could ever imagine if I would have been here and they would have had to travel uh, to New York or elsewhere. So there are positive things that we need to keep and to take advantage also in the future, even mm -hmm. how tired we are now <laughs> about sitting in these screen meetings. 
Absolutely. I think we'll all travel to fewer conferences for certain. So as we conclude this fascinating discussion, Ambassadors, I wonder if you had one piece of advice, a career or life advice to young people considering a career in diplomacy, what would it be? Ambassador Anistrom? I would say get good education, but I would say me even more, get out and work in the field. I think that experience is very important when going into global affairs and diplomacy and to do something where you are committed and engaged in global affairs. Mm. Ambassador Brandt? Absolutely. I think it's a great job, but I think it's important to know that it requires you to remain open and curious. I've been basically curious and you need to be driven to understand others and other countries and other systems. So open, curious. I think it's also important for young people to realize, just be yourself, remain authentic, uh, be who you are. And if you enjoy this area of work as Anna Karin said, global issues, global development, then this is a career. Although you have to have a little bit of patience because it's sometimes three steps forward, you know, two steps back or tiny little baby steps ahead. So if you're in for wanting to make quick results, then you might not be very happy in this line of work, I think. Excellent. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Excellencies, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thank you also to our listeners for listening to UNCDF's podcast. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, uncdf.org.